Today's episode is sponsored by Australian company and longtime friend of the show, Cravon Studios. True to their model, bringing friends and family back to the table, they're going to be bringing their new game, Rare Roses, to Kickstarter this August. It's a highly interactive game for one to six players where you are a florist in the semi-cutthroat world of floral design. During the game, you'll purchase roses from the market or other players and use them to fulfill orders to become the richest florist in Bloomsville. Rare Roses features the artwork of fantasy artist Nene Thomas, who you might know from her work with Magic the Gathering and Gen Con. So, be sure to check out Cravon Studios on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Cravon Studios. That's C-R-A-V-O-N Studios. And keep an eye out for this beautifully cutthroat family game coming to Kickstarter in August. With your help, they can create something beautiful. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about moments, talking about magical moments, this magic moment, talking to Derek Funkhauser, a uh, developer over at Skybound Games. Derek, welcome to the show. Hey, Gabe, thank you so much for for having me on the show today. Yeah, man, I'm excited. Uh, I guess I should also mention Derek from the uh, newly 15,000-membered group uh, Board Game Spotlight. Congrats on the all just amazing success with that group, man. I'm a, I'm a part of it. I love seeing the stuff that y'all post every single day. So Board Game Spotlight, give that a shout out as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are overjoyed with, with where it's come, you know, over the short, uh, short four or five years that uh, we've been running that, but we're really, really happy with uh, what, what, where it's at. And, you know, we love the community and, and we're excited to see what happens in the future. Yeah, definitely. I would say that's one of the main places on Facebook to just get really cool uh, news and updates and, and stuff cool stuff about board games and what people are playing right now and different uh, thought provoking discussions. And for the most part, it's pretty civil. Every now and then we have a little, <laughs> little ruckus going on that you have to come in and moderate and be like, Hey guys, Hey, y'all are in my house. And so, you know, take your shoes off, you know, wipe your feet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, you know, the, you know, people are people. And we just have to remember that the person that you're talking to online is, is somebody just like you are and that, you know, differing opinions can be you know, civil, you know, to be able to, to chat about those and to converse with people who may not have the same beliefs as you. But yeah, we we try to to moderate that as best as we can. <laughs> right. Well, cool, man. Well, hey, I'm excited to talk about moments in games, creating magical moments, creating these experiential type of things in games. But first, before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, well, as, as you know, I'm, I'm Derek Funkhauser. <laughs> um, direct, I was the director of the board game spotlight, but now that's been passed on to my wife, Lizzie, who is now the director of the board game spotlight. So she runs all of that, which is super cool. Um, we both designed our first game that's coming out this summer at San Diego comic-con. Uh, it's an IP related, uh, card game based around the walking dead universe. So we're very excited about that. Uh, I also have a couple other games that uh, will be coming out in the near future future um have been signed by publishers but are not announced yet um so i was doing freelance work now i am working as the developer uh lead development development manager at, the, at skybound games uh also doing design work there as well um so we we now reside in california los angeles moved all the way across the country 2200 miles from uh, where we were living in Illinois. And uh, now this is what I do full-time and it's what Lizzie does uh, full-time from home. 
Yeah, definitely. And now I, I see all sorts of posts of you, you know, on Facebook saying, hey, that I'm working on a prototype and like you have the game design bug, sir. You have been bitten, <laughs> honestly. And so like what but what got you into it? Like what really got the gears turning to say, hey, I don't only want to play these things. I want to design my own. Yeah. So actually a funny story, the game that is getting published this summer is not the first game I've I've designed. And in fact, the game that the first game I designed with a co-designer, uh, Fate of the West with Chris Strain is actually has been signed by a publisher and will be coming out probably within the next year or so. Uh, but really what kind of drove me to get into the game design was all the games that I started playing. I got into the board games back in 2014. Um, and when I said got into board games, I basically fell straight down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Grew up playing a lot of different card games, obviously some of the more well-known like Settlers of Catan and things like that. But um, first game was Seven Wonders. And after playing that, it really just got a lot of gears turning in my head as far as like trying to solve the puzzles and just trying to break down, you know, that this came out of somebody's mind <laughs> that they, you know, the creative process is there. And I've always been kind of the creative and I've always enjoyed um, doing that kind of thing. And so the arts and crafts of it was another hands-on experience that I really enjoyed, but really just trying to create the moments. I wanted to create moments that I was experiencing from games that other people had designed. So those moments that I was experiencing playing a game, I wanted to be able to have that satisfaction and see the smiles and, and things on people's faces uh, that were hopefully playing games that I've made. Yeah, definitely. And it is a very satisfying thing, even at a play test, you know, when, when your game is still, you know, only 30% done, but when somebody has a smile on their face, they're like, man, this, this is cool. This was fun. Uh, I enjoyed even this little part of the game. It's a really cool moment. Mm -hmm. And so let's, let's get into that. What is it? Like, what does it mean? Like, let's get a good little definition. What is a magic moment as far as game, you know, uh, board games? So, I mean, I don't even know if there's a, a definition of a magic moment in a game, but for me, um, a magic moment in a game is is when the light bulb comes on and maybe you're playing an engine builder and you've been working up five, six, seven rounds and you finally get that engine moving. And on your next turn, you just, the light, the light flips on and you watch this machine that you've built take form and start to process and do all these things that you are hoping it was going to do. Of course, there are probably moments too where you're sitting there like, oh, this is not working how I thought it was going to work. But having you know that light bulb moment like that, the magic moment of seeing something you created inside a game and seeing it work like that. And then you know in other types of mediums too, like party games and social games where you've got that interaction with other players and creating those laughs, the smiles, the uh, the memories, really, um, I think I would define if I had to pinpoint what a magic moment in a game would be as a lasting memory. So when you come away from playing a game, it's something from that game that you will remember days, months, I mean, maybe even years uh, later. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important to always, always remember how people think and how they process things that happen in a game. Because nobody ever says, hey, you remember that time I turned three wheat into two victory points to win the game? <laughs> like nobody says that, you know? They always talk about it in like story terms, you know? They talk about it in the intrigue and the deception. Like, hey, you remember that time you mm -hmm. thought I was going for coal, but I was actually going for wheat? And I, you know, and, and then they talk like, like these moments of life, you know, and they just kind of turn game mechanics into life stories and whatnot. And I think it also depends on the kind of game. Like you mentioned engine builder, building. Um, when the engine clicks and you're like, yes, and you get that mm -hmm. magical moment, it feels good and you get those endorphins, that dopamine hitting your, hitting your brain like, aha, I am smarter than everyone else at the table. That's a cool moment. But also if it's like a story-driven game or a narrative-driven game and you flip over that card or you turn to the page in the, the storybook or whatever it is and this really cool thing happens or I'm reminded of like Pandemic Legacy, the, the first 
uh, first game, part one, you had that certain month and people who've played the game know what I'm talking about. That certain month, you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe <laughs> this just happened. This Did that just happened? Yeah, this is crazy and I hate it at the same time. I love it and it's amazing. And what are we going to do? That's a cool magical moment, you know, but it's mm-hmm. a totally different thing than an engine builder or, you know, something else. And so why do you think people are so drawn in to these moments? Why do we, why do we remember these things that happen? Like I can remember uh, playing uh, shadows over Camelot years ago with my mm-hmm. wife's family. And turns out Meemaw, her sweet little old grandmother was the traitor the whole time and ruined us at the very end. Like we were like on the verge of winning. And she was like, Oh, so if I put out this last catapult and we're like, no, 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 don't do that. We'll lose. And she said, yeah, but I'll win. And she put it out and she's like, ha ha. And like turned over her, her trader card. And I was like, no, and it, it was amazing. And I remember, I will remember that forever. Right. I don't remember hardly anything else about that game or you know, what happened, but I remember that moment. And so like, what is it about these moments? It's, I mean, just draws people in. I mean, we can almost get a little psychological. Like, what are you, what are you thinking? Yeah, I think, so I, th- I think this, this question, I think the answer is twofold. Um, number one, I think we have to remember what board games are and it is a medium of social and personal interaction and that social contract you have with the players at the table and enjoying something together. You know, I think a lot of times people are, or recently people are trying to get away from their screens, trying to socialize a little bit more, trying to bring their families in so they can have those moments together. And board games are a wonderful way of making that happen. So the first part, I think, of what drives people into board games and what allows players to have those magical moments is the social aspect of board games. And then the second part of that of that answer would be that players are naturally engrossed with things that they can actually be. I I feel like if you are personally invested and you are actually hands-on with something, it's going to draw you into that experience even more. So board games inherently are tactile experiences. And so players, I feel like are, are going to maybe, you know, and we all have those friends who are really hesitant to play, you know, whatever it is, maybe it's a storytelling game or a narrative game, or, or it may not be a game that they're naturally good at, but if they are with friends and they are with people that they generally enjoy spending time with, and you get them to play that game, it may take them a little while to warm up, but those moments of seeing them dive in, um, I think that's that's part of the magic of of what board games can do. Yeah, for sure. And this is one thing I think tabletop RPGs really just have a, a an advantage over board games because the the there's no limits. Like anything can happen in an RPG because you don't have nearly the strict rule set. And so, you, like I've I've played so many games of D and D and different RPGs, and like these amazing moments happen, things that you remember forever. And so, I think when a board game pulls it off, it's just super impressive, you know. And I want to talk about some examples here in a minute, but I think I want to just briefly go in a little bit deeper on what some of you said just saying ago and talk about like social media and like people are getting away from their screens and wanting to log off. You know, we're so connected all day, every day. I saw a thing the other day and it said the average Instagram user checks Instagram 150 times a day, right? Like we are just so engrossed with our devices. And what Mm -hmm. we're finding out more and more though, is like social media is not particularly social. Like it's just not really that social compared to like, you know, actual human interaction and community and sitting across the table from somebody. It's just totally different. And we see that in the comments, right? If your best friend says something, you go, man, I don't know. I don't, I don't agree with that. But if somebody online says it, you're like, I hate you. You're evil. You're terrible. It's like, whoa, it's it's just different, you know? And so I feel like board games are just really tapping into a, or hitting on a nerve, right? That, Mm -hmm. That our society is just like, really just, it desperately needs. And if you look at, 
the movies we watch and the books we read, we like, we want these cool moments, you know, Avengers Endgame mm-hmm. just came out. Like we wanted these cool moments to happen and to the tune of billions of dollars, like we spent our money to go see it. And so, yeah. And, and, and with Avengers Endgame too, like, I think that's exactly what we're talking about here in board games is that we, if you are a fan of the Avengers and even the Marvel MCU phase one, you have invested 10 years or more of your life in these movies. And so you have invested your time and you feel connected to these characters. And then to see the things that played out in Avengers Endgame, you feel so much more connected. And that's what a board game does in that one to three hours or heck even 20 to 30 minutes the time you're spending to build this game or the story or whatever's playing out and to have that moment you feel um connected to it because you were part of what played out whether winning or losing whatever it is you feel uh inherently connected to that and i you know as board games start to grow and we start to to hopefully bring more people into it, I think we're seeing that human nature inherently people need that social interaction. And, you know, with social media, I like what you said there about how social media is almost a lie because it's not very social. What social media does is feed the lie and makes you feel connected even though you are not there or you are not personally experiencing whatever your friends or family are. And so it has a false sense of connection, a false sense of experience, even though, you know, it's a good thing. I do like social media. Obviously we're very uh, big into it, but again, there are times where you just need to turn off your phone, sit at the table and experience that one-on-one or, you know, group um, social interaction. Yeah, definitely. And going back to what you're just talking about with like, you get to be part of the experience. You're, you're not just in experiencing it. You got, you get to actually make choices. You know, I'm thinking like when you go to a movie, you're, you're just going to sit there in your chair and you're going to enjoy some popcorn and you're going to have the movie wash over you and you're going to enjoy it mm-hmm. or disagree whatever happens, but you don't have any say, right? The movie's already been written. It's been shot. It's been edited. The whole thing happened without any of your control and you just get to enjoy it. Same thing with books. You know, you just get to read to the end and, and see what happens. But with, with board games, I get to make the choices. I get to choose how this story plays out or, or maybe, you know, I get to choose what dice to roll and the dice ultimately decide either way, but I, <laughs> I get to have a say in how this story plays out. And especially with narrative games or co-op games and things like that, they have you know more story to them. It, it's really cool. And I feel like that's another thing people love about this. They get to decide which moments are magical or which moments could be magical. I, I'm, I'm reminded of Game of Thrones and I feel like there's a lot of people who wish that they could make some choices about how the magical moments played out there at the end. And I'm not a fan. Like I don't, I don't, watch the show here's a funny thing i've only ever seen one episode maybe two episodes of game of thrones and it was Mm -hmm. the random most random thing it was years ago i was at a friend of mine's house i guess it's sunday night when it comes on and they were like hey you want to watch game of thrones i was like game of who and sure i'll I'll watch the fantasy cool that sounds fun and never seen before and it turned out to be the episode of the red wedding and if you've seen the show you know how crazy that episode is and all these things are happening and my friends are freaking out they're like oh my gosh can you believe this and i'm like were these characters important <laughs> like i have no context i have no frame of reference I, and but they're all like sad no about certain characters dying and stuff and i'm like were those people you know important to the show <laughs> but anyway if it had been a board game maybe you get to roll some dice to see who dies this episode you know you get to have more choice in the matter and i feel like that's one thing that just draws people in yeah i think you know anytime that you have the ability to uh, portray something or, or again, like we've talked about having that, um, 
interaction and, and just like what you said, you get to choose what happens. You know, I, I, I'm reminded of, you know, recently with Van Ryder games, the choose your own adventure books, the graphic novel adventures that they've brought out, man, talk about well-timed, um, just that narrative sense. And, you know, with them being uh soloable and with the reading and just kind of the adventure it takes you on. And even in the new one that they came out with the Crusoe crew, with it being a cooperative adventure. I mean, that is just a, such a fun narrative adventure. Um, and I feel like those are the types of experiences that players get transported into this world and they just get lost and then they get done and they're like, whoa, you know, and there are some things that happen, some twists along the way that they may not have seen coming. And, you know, what I'm reminded of in board games is it's really interesting because when you look at the psychological nature of people, um, my magic moment in a game will likely be completely different to what yours was. Yeah. Um, even in a co-op game where we're working together, my magic moment, uh, what what clicks for me or what makes that memorable may be different than what what, with you, what yours was. Or maybe collectively we all pitch in and something happens and it's, it's a collective magic moment. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Peter Hayward. Peter C. Hayward, as he likes to go, uh, was on the show a while back and we were talking about cooperative games and he talked about how he hates cooperative games where there's, where there's open information, where everybody knows everything, like pandemic with all the cards on the table. He hates it because he doesn't feel like he gets to be uh, his own individual person. He just feels like, okay, it's basically just groupthink and whoever talks loudest wins. And so he, but he really loves limited information co-ops where if he doesn't come up with the right answer, the team's not going to get the right answer and the team's not going to win. So he gets to feel like this, this star player, so to speak. And, and he likes those kind of moments. And it's like you're saying, they're like, it's going to be different for, for each individual person, what clicks. But I think what you're really trying to create with your, with your games, your game design is this idea of verisimilitude. And I've talked about this on the, on the show in the past of getting the, the players to buy in that this is real, right. And getting them to like, you get focused in, even if it's a dry Euro, but getting them to just kind of buy into the mechanisms of the game or the story of the game. And that way you can have these magical moments because they have, they have suspended disbelief, right? They know that Cthulhu is not about to rise. They, we, we know that, but in the game, yes. And if you can get them to kind of buy in and get that drama and get that tension for Arkham Horror or whatever it is, like you can create some really cool moments. And actually, let's let's talk about some more examples. Like we've mentioned several games already. What are some of your favorite examples of games that do this right, that do this well, have these magical moments? So, um, well, that's a great question. Uh, the first would be my my number one game of all time, which is Star Wars Rebellion. Mm. I think uh, playing that game, I have had more magic and memorable moments than any game that I've ever played. And I think that lends itself to just being in the Star Wars universe and being related to the IP and having that, um, you know, episodes four, five, and six and, and seeing that play out, it really feels like it's Star Wars in a box. And so as I'm playing the game, I, I've actually physically gotten goosebumps at some of the things that have portrayed like you know i've i've led luke to destroy the the death star and i've you know um captured luke skywalker as the empire and then turned to the dark side i'm like oh my gosh what if that actually happened and all these what ifs and it's just those types of moments for me i think star wars rebellion does it incredibly well yeah definitely i'll i tell you what you do yours and i'll do mine we'll just kind of go back and forth some of these games that we love i love time stories for the narrative magical moments of 
you know, especially one thing is frustrating. You go through the story over and over again because you're trying to get it right. Mm-hmm. But like when you experience it for that first time and you flip over that card, you're like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Like this thing that just happened, like what what's happening next? You know, and these cool narrative moments and you're looking at your, your friends around the table and you're like, man, this is just a cool story that's playing out that we get to be a part of. But do we go to this card or that card? You know, and you're trying to make those choices. And so you, again, you get to be part of the story as it unfolds. I, I love the narrative nature of that. Yeah, Time Stories is an awesome example. I've I've had some really great memories. Um, in fact, one of the our favorite stories is that um, when we first got into board gaming, uh, probably a year after we start, we played Time Stories, and it was the first, you know, just the base box, core box, and we split up into two groups because we had, uh, I think it was six people, so we needed to do three and three, and so three people went and played it. And then they recorded the score. Didn't tell us anything that happened. And they, and they gave it to us. And then Lizzie and myself, and we had a third that was supposed to play, but he couldn't make it. So we had another player step in for us that had played on the other. So he's already played through it, but he told us from the beginning, we said, hey, do not tell us anything. Don't even hint if we're going to make a decision, just go along with the group and kind of just help facilitate dice rolls and things like that so that he didn't give anything away. Well, we got to the end and we, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a pretty big twist at the end of the core box where if you do something, something really bad happens. But if you choose not to do that thing, then you win. Well, we didn't do that thing. So we won and come to find out the other group had done the thing and lost horribly because they chose to do it. And we've, we've teased them and ribbed them for years over that experience because we're like, what were you thinking? Why would you even go along with that? <laughs> and it's, it's one of the, that's one of our inside, uh, you know, group jokes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, another one I want to talk about, and this is kind of a different, different angle is lost cities. And it's a two player game. It's an old school Reiner Knizia game. And I love it because of the tension and the drama. Cause you, you know what cards you need and you're mm-hmm. hoping your opponent doesn't know what cards you need. And you have these like really tense, dramatic moments of like, gosh, I hope they put down the six because I really need the six. And then they do. And you're like, ah, and then you get to play all these other cards. And you have this like magical moment of like, uh, and all that tension kind of gets relieved. And it's, it's really, so I think it doesn't have to be a narrative game. It doesn't have to be a story game or anything like that. You can also just kind of have these dramatic moments of just card play, you know, and just walking yeah. through the mechanisms. Absolutely. And, you know, my next example is a card game uh, itself as well. Baseball highlights 2045, yeah. a huge baseball player. And to be able to build uh, my deck with with uh, players and then have these moments where I'm, I'm, you know, threatening with a hit and I'm watching, you know, does my opponent have an answer? And then, oh, they cancel my hits and then they come back with a hit of their own. And it's just back and forth. And then, you know, sometimes you might have a, a card that just lets you walk off the win and it just is... It's so fun to see how that plays out and to be able to be like, oh, you remember that one time where you beat me by two runs, but I came through and I hit a walk-off uh, home run to win the game or whatever it is. And I've had a lot of memories with that one. Yeah, definitely. Now, something we were talking about before the episode we started recording is legacy games. And I already talked about pandemic legacy, but what do you think is, what is it about legacy games that also just creates so many of these magical moments? Cause you I mean, here, I mean, granted there's not that many legacy games. And so it's kind of a mm-hmm. small sample size, but like, what is it about legacy games that creates these magical moments? Well, I think with legacy games, I think that's one of their strong, their strong suits, right? Legacy games get a bad rap for a number of different things um, in in the industry or even just from consumers uh, who don't want to throw away their money to to play a game once. But, you know, every time I see somebody talk about that, I say, well, didn't you just spend $30 to go see Avengers Endgame for one, you know, one shot, three hours? You're going to play Pandemic Legacy and probably get 12 to 15 hours out of the game. 
um, or you know, however many hours you get out of it. But I think what legacy games do really, really well is that because they are this campaign, and in fact, you know, legacy games are really just a campaign game that's set up to only run you know one time. So even legacy games and campaign driven games, they allow you to build this narrative or this story where you can have these twists and turns and things can happen that you didn't see coming. And now the group has to um, deal with, you know, like you were talking about with pandemic legacy season one, that twist that you just don't see coming. Um, and even in campaign narrative games where the, you know, if you lose something bad happens, or if you win, you may gain some sort of reward. Um, or even you, maybe you win and something bad happens that you were not anticipating. So it's, it's that almost unknown, you know, that you really start to take, um, take on, the the role of of diving in and becoming the person or the people that you're playing as and i think that really that's what legacy games lend themselves to is really engrossing you in in the narrative yeah for sure i think it's the advantage that a tv show has over a movie because you have a longer form you have a longer time period to have arcs character arcs to really get invested into characters and to see them grow and to see them change as opposed to just a 90 minute you know thing where it's got to be pretty quick i mean movies have to move pretty fast and you have to do a lot of just jumping over certain things because you don't have a, a long time but if you're running you know a whole season or you know game of thrones however about eight seasons whatever it was like that's a long time to, to mm -hmm. really invest and i feel like legacy games gonna have that advantage over other board games you have this time to really invest in your character and things like that and i feel like another big advantage legacy games have over other games as far as magical moments is typically i think i've talked about this on the show in the past but typically you're going to play a legacy game with people you really like like you're not going to sit down <laughs> and play pandemic legacy with a bunch of strangers and you're like all right guys uh, i'll see you for the next 12 weeks you know people mm -hmm, that i mm -hmm. just met like it just doesn't happen you, you want to invest your time in these games with people that you really like and so you know i feel like a lot of other games don't they don't have that advantage Right. Well, and even, you know, especially with legacy games is that they want you to experience the game as with the same group, yeah. right? Like they, they want you to go through this progression, through this story, through the campaign together with the same people. And so I think that allows the group to have even more dynamic and even more magical moments because you have the backstory of, you know, maybe you're in episode seven and you have one through six and you're like, okay, remember when that happened? And then we did that and this thing happened and like, oh yeah, you killed that big boss and it was amazing and we're like yeah well this is kind of like that <laughs> and so you get that tabletop going and and you get these memories that were created by the table using board games yeah and it could be hey steve remember that time you defeated that boss or it could be hey steve remember that time you killed us all but either way it's a cool moment <laughs> that's it's <true>. cool memory. <laughs> that's, that's true a, a, a magic moment doesn't have to necessarily be uh, a good thing <laughs> it could be a bad memory you're like hey remember when you did that thing yeah this is like that. Don't do it this time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I remember when you had almost a hundred percent chance of, of winning and then you rolled a one or remember that time you had a 1% chance of winning and you rolled a 20. Like it's just, you know, who knows? So, all right. Do you have any more uh, examples of games that you really love that do magic moments? Well, in this episode, we've talked about um, mainly the thematic games that lend themselves to magical moments. And, you know, engine builders could be dry euros um, and, and those can lend themselves to having magic moments. But typically you don't think of euros having magic moments. And I think that's probably because they're not as heavily themed and the game is not centered or, or driven by the theme of the game itself. Um, but Escape, uh, Escape Plan from Vital Lacerda and Eagle Griffin Games is one of the most thematic Euros that I've played and has created some really incredible magic moments in the game as you're trying to escape and 
grab the most cash from your bank heist while you're being chased by cops and you're also trying to throw your friends under the bus and trying to get them captured and it is it is a cube pusher it's a euro game in every sense of of the of the word euro but the way that those mechanisms interact with what players are doing allows players to almost feel like you are legit on this bank heist and it really pulls you into the world yeah, definitely. I think Robinson Crusoe falls into that category as well, where it's it's mm-hmm. Euro, man. I mean, you're you're doing it's got some dice rolling, sure, but like you're really just pushing things around and, and trying to maximize your actions and and you know uh, maximize the odds and, and probabilities and things like that. But then mm-hmm. it's got amazing storytelling with the deck, you know, the uh, the deck of cards that unfold these different events and different things that happen when the dice don't go your way. Like I feel like it's this really cool marriage between Euro mechanics and narrative, all in one cool package. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I take that time to say that it's, it's any game can have a magic moment. It's not just the heavily themed games, but euros can have them. Card games can have them. Party games obviously have, uh, are more prone to having those magic moments as you get people interacting in the social aspect of board games. But, you know, it's, it's a magic moment is a magic moment and any game can create that. Yeah, definitely. One, another thing I love, and this is from a different angle is the kind of the uh, besides the game magic moment so the the context how it plays into it sometimes and i'm reminded of several years ago uh, during the summertime i work in atlanta uh, running this this homeless service ministry and there are a lot of guys on the street that hang out in a certain park where we go and, and just serve and, and you know cook lunch for people and things like that and uh, they, they play chess just all day long they just come out there and they play chess and they are very very good and so one time uh, one group they had this idea it's like what if we ran a chess tournament I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we, we can do that. And so we put together this chess tournament and we hyped it up. We advertised it, you know, hey, here in a few days, we're going to run this chess tournament out of this uh, soup kitchen. We're going to serve lunch. And if you want to play chess, we're going to have, you know, table set up and all the games set up. And uh, I had a friend of mine at the church who runs a trophy shop. And so I was like, hey, can I, can, like, would you donate a trophy? Can I get a chess trophy? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And so we had this like really cool trophy for the winner and things like that. And so all these guys, these people that, you know, typically uh, live outside showed up and, just had a lot of fun. They had a great time. We ate lunch and they had all these high school kids who think they're smart, right? Cause when you're seven, 17, you're the smartest person in the world. And they're like, Oh, you know, we're, we're going to, we're, we're probably going to beat these guys. And they just got destroyed. They got absolutely just annihilated, <laughs> you know, beaten in like five moves kind of thing. And it was so cool to have all these just amazing people coming together, playing chess. And I remember the guy that won, uh, he kind of did a little underdog. Like he, he wasn't one of the best players necessarily but he found a way to win and uh, when that in that championship game and and there were so many people there's like 50 people surrounding this chess board right of these two guys sitting and mm-hmm. you don't think of chess as like a spectator sport typically like with fans and like you know people cheering about different moves and going ooh, you know different things like that when when different pawns were taken and things like that it was just this magical moment for these these two guys playing chess. And then when the guy won, and you know, I remember I've got a picture of it somewhere, just this huge smile on his face, and he's holding that trophy up. And that was just a really cool, magical moment. And it, it was chess, you know, one of the oldest games in the world, and not a game you typically think, oh, lots of magical moments. I mean, it, it, maybe for some people, but I think that's not a game that people would go directly to as far as, oh, yeah, that's, that chess creates a lot of magical moments. Like, no, probably, <laughs> probably not. So, but the context plays into it as well. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I, I, I totally agree with, with that as well. And that's, re- that's a really cool moment and be able to hear that. That's, that's really neat to see people come together like that. And I know Geekway to the West, which was just last week, I know they kind of have something similar to that, uh, with battle tops where they've got this, this big, uh, wrestling champion, uh, belt that you can win. And, you know, it's, this is a huge deal at Geekways to have this battle tops event and to see the people come around and it's, it's really just battling tops. It's, it's very, very, you know, when you look on it, if you were just playing it in your home and you were just, you know, with your friends or whatever, it may not be as uh, dramatic as it is there at Geekway. But it's so cool to see these people get into something that they love and then having all these people share this moment with uh, with each other. It's, it's those types of things where, you know, the context is is really what drives that moment. Yeah, I think conventions provide a lot of these moments for people. I think that's one of the main reasons to go to conventions. You get to have these moments uh, that you normally wouldn't have at game night with just you and a few friends because you have so many different kinds of people, different kinds of games, stuff you've never seen before. And then you get to have the, these bigger context moments like you're saying. I, I, man, conventions are just just a lot of fun. Yeah, conventions conventions are awesome. Um, you know, I think that's one of the best ways to, to socialize and to network is to get to conventions and and um, just having the availability or even the option of jumping into a game uh, with people you may not know. And again, you know, not every game lends itself to, to playing really well with strangers, but it's really cool to see those types of social interactions and to uh, have those icebreakers and to have these moments with people that you don't even know. And, and you may come away from that game uh, sharing a moment with somebody that you didn't know before and now that you do know them and it's something that you two or even the group experience together and you may come away with uh with friends going forward you know through life there um and you know other times you may (laughs) have bad interactions with people that don't leave the best uh impression either but um either way it conventions are an awesome way to to spend time with other gamers yeah definitely all right let's switch gears just a little bit let's kind of go a little bit more into the design of things one thing i have one thing i have written down in my notes is designing magical moments for games that are based on licensed ip because i feel like you're fighting a different battle there you know like you were mentioning with star wars uh you've got Mm -hmm. whether it's a comic book series or a movie series tv series whatever it is you have a certain fan base built in that they're expecting certain things to happen you know and like with certain IPs you can't go against. Like I know with Disney, they're very restrictive. They're very limited in what you can do as far as like mm-hmm. you, you can't do certain things. Like just, they just won't let you do it because uh, they want to make sure their brand stays you know consistent. And so like what are the challenges in designing for a licensed IP, making sure you're delivering to the fans those magical moments that, that make sense or things like that, especially like, like you have this Walking Dead game coming out. Like tell me about mm-hmm. your process and making sure you kind of deliver the way you're, you want it to. Well, I think when your IP and, and licensed brands are an entirely different uh, beast or, or even a different uh, category of, of game, um, instead of coming up with something that may um, come from your brain, you know, you're taking on this this theme or this license that already has this huge fan base. And in regards to Walking Dead, I think one of the best things that you can do as a designer, if you really want to design a game based around an IP, is that um, immerse yourself in that IP. Uh, read about it, watch it, um, interact with the fans, or even just kind of research and see how that fan base is. And then, as you as you have those that that research and that experience, then that will help feed your design process for that IP. And so, I think one of the hardest things is is designing for an IP that you're not inspired by. I think 
it's very, very, very important that you design a game around something you're inspired to design around. Um, you know, and, and and I think a lot of times too with IP related games, designers won't necessarily design something that they're not inspired by because they really love that world. And so they're like, oh, I want to build a game around this. But, you know, I'm sure there are uh, situations where they're designing a game for something they just don't um, have that love for. And so with The Walking Dead, that was something that I've been reading for quite a while. And, you know, I've enjoyed the TV show, been keeping up with that, played a lot of the different uh, video games and, and such. And so having that uh, information and having that experience and those memories of, of what I've experienced what I've read and experienced through enjoying The Walking Dead made it a lot easier for me to design a game around that world. Yeah, definitely. And so when you were sitting down dreaming up, you know, the mechanisms and how the game is going to play out and things like that, what were some of the magical moments that you were hoping for? You know, in, just in your initial design process, like talk, talk me through kind of that early on, okay, these are the magic moments I'm really hoping happen in this game. So, um, for those for those who are unfamiliar with the game, it's uh, it's a, it's a small box card game for two to six players, and it uh, plays in about fifteen to thirty minutes. It is a simultaneous card game, and players are trying to work together to survive the uh, the different encounters that they face in in the world that that surrounds them, while also trying to be the the one that uh, eventually claims the prize and, and wins and is the leader of the group. Um, but for those who are familiar with The Walking Dead, they know it's a brutal world. It's it's very in your face and it's very real. And it's it's not necessarily so much about the walkers and what's happened, but it's it's very much about what the players are trying to do to survive. Some of the things they're forced, the decisions they're forced to make. And so what I wanted to do with the game was the magic moments um, in this game particularly are are actually double-sided because the magic moment for a player is out uh, maneuvering or outsmarting the group to take advantage of a situation and take the lead or even to win the game. Uh, but on the reverse side, the the other players at the table will actually um, feel that betrayal or feel that backstab. And so you've got a very high and a very low for others. So it, I, I really think that it really preys on that uh, entire world that The Walking Dead is built around. It's that, you know, to do to win, to be the top dog, you're going to have to do things that are going to betray your friends or betray people um, just to get the leg up. And, you know, seeing that play out at the table, you then have to face those people that you just betrayed. So you get that very real social interaction. Um, the person that you just betrayed, you have to look in the eyes. And uh, it's it's that type of experience that I wanted to, to go, go in the game. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, but it makes total sense. You know, if you watch The Walking Dead and then you play a game based on it and there isn't betrayal and there isn't any backbiting or anything like that, you'd be like, oh, this, this doesn't make sense. You know, but so <laughs> you need it. You need to have it in there for people to, for people who love the show people love the, the comic series to really buy in and, and think yeah this this is that world and on the flip side if you had a disney game with a whole bunch of backstabbing and betrayal I'm like this eh, is kind of weird i just i just lied <laughs> to my child and and now you know their character's dead like that, that'd be a weird experience for a disney game so you have to manage those expectations yeah absolutely it's it's what makes sense for the brand what makes sense for the world what are the fans used to what are the what are the fans going to want what's going to keep them coming back to the table to play this game and, it, and i think it's that social interaction and and those moments of it's not necessarily take that um, in the sense of uh, a randomized situation because everybody has the same amount of cards. They all actually have the same exact cards, but when you play them and when you draw them is going to be different based on your deck. Um, but it's 
It's really that are you going to choose? And, and a lot of the a lot of the decisions you can make are actually uh, very dependent on you. You could choose to play the game and be, be very nice to everybody, uh, or you could play the game and be nice here and and bad here, or you could be just entirely bad from the beginning and try to just um, backstab everybody that that comes across uh, in your way. And so I, that's one of the things that I think that The Walking Dead world needed was that choice and that player agency of, okay, you could play if you want to be good, you could kind of walk the line, or you could just take on full, full Negan mode and just be really mean. Yeah, for sure. Now, when you're sitting down to design a game, do you kind of have like a little checklist? Are you start, you know, the gears start turning right from the beginning? What kind of magical moments you're leading up to? I'm reminded of Eric Lang. He came on the show about a year ago and he talked mm -hmm. about when he was working on Death May Die and how he really wanted the moment that a player, he wanted to create the moment where a player just shoots Cthulhu in the face with a shotgun. Like he wanted that moment and create a game <laughs> around that type of a, you know, situation. Even he's like, I know it doesn't exactly fit the mythos, but I want this moment of, of shooting Cthulhu in the face with a shotgun. And I was like, yeah, awesome. That sounds great. You know? And so he's kind of started the, the design process from that angle of, I want to create mm -hmm. these kinds of moments. So do you do something similar and do you like, do you bullet, bullet point those out? Do you kind of make a little checklist of what you're trying to, trying to hit or, or how do you do it? So when I'm designing games, it, it, it honestly depends if I'm designing a game for an IP or if I'm designing a game uh, that is from my own creative uh, creative mind. If I'm designing a game around an IP in regards to something like The Walking Dead, the, the fan base and those magical moments are at the forefront because I want to be able to recreate uh, things that the fans are going to enjoy, something that does that world justice uh, and, and makes that, that game marry up well with the brand. And so with The Walking Dead, I, I definitely had things that I wanted to happen. I wanted players to feel a very high, uh, when, the, when the highs are high, but the lows are low. And I wanted that to fluctuate based on what was happening during each of the rounds. And then one of the things from the very beginning is that I wanted the group to be able to just die. So everybody in the game can die just flat out you're dead and i wanted that potential to happen because the walking dead that world is just like like i said earlier it's brutal um you know people are gonna die uh the group may not survive and so that was something that we wanted to incorporate in the game was that players can actually determine if the group's going to live or die. And it's really up, up to players decisions and some, someone may die and the rest of the group survives or everybody survives or no one survives. And so it's those different moments that I wanted to create. And that was very, from the very beginning, something I wanted to incorporate into the game. Yeah, definitely. I think another cool thing about working on an IP is that you get to put these little Easter eggs. And I think that's another mm -hmm. reason why it's great. If, if the designer really loves the source material, because they're going to know all these little nuances that, you know, that unless you've read the thing or unless you've seen the episodes a whole bunch of times, you're not going to notice. And they, you get to kind of add these things in there for the fans, for them to go, oh, man, this is from, you know, episode 12, you know, in season three or whatever, or comic issue 45. Yeah, I'm really, really excited about The Walking Dead uh, for two reasons. Uh, the two Easter eggs I planted into the game. Uh, number one is that uh, from the beginning, I had some some questions from playtesters or even some people that were like, wait a minute, why isn't Glenn a playable character? Uh, because you have nine of these characters uh, in the game. And this is nothing I'm not, I mean, if you've not read The Walking Dead, I'm sorry, but this is a very old spoiler. <laughs> um but there are nine playable characters. Each player has the same set of nine cards. And uh, Glenn is not one of those characters. Even though Glenn was very much a part of that world, uh, Glenn is actually on a card that you can collect. It is a set collection game. He is actually out gathering supplies. Uh, one of the encounters you can have in the game is to face Negan. Um, and so I think not having Glenn on a card 
having Negan as one of the enemies in the game uh, is that cool Easter egg moment of, wait, why don't I have Glenn? Well, that's because he doesn't make it. (laughs) And one of the other things too is leading up to some of the new seasons where Carl uh, really takes on a form of himself and he's growing into his own person. He's growing into his own man. And, you know, we, we, you saw that as he was growing up as a teenager. Um, but the game is a simultaneous card play game. So based on timing and what's played, uh, it's very similar to something like Raptor or Mission Red Planet. And so Carl um, is a number three and Rick is a number nine. Well, Rick being the strongest person in the group always goes first unless Carl is played and Carl reverses the turn order. So Carl actually, it's almost like a foreshadowing of Carl taking, you know, saying, dad, I don't need you anymore. I'm my own person. I don't need to listen to you. And so he, he, he does that, that switch, that flop of, okay, now I get to go before you dad and you actually going to go last. Yeah. It's also a, a callback to several of the plot lines of Carl making a really <laughs> poor choice and causing the entire group to have to change what they were going to do and go some <laughs> other direction. And many people die in the process. So I think it, it all it yeah. fits, man. If it's the theme, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of theme going on for sure for people who are fans of the, of the comic book. Yeah, definitely. And I'm also reminded of, so this doesn't have to be an IP necessarily. I'm, I was on, I don't, it might've been the board game spotlight the other day. And somebody was talking about, the uh, the board for Scythe and how they had just noticed that Thor is on the board <laughs> holding his hammer. Like if you get really close, yeah. you can see Thor. And like that's a really cool magical moment. It's just noticing the art. Yeah. Order. And see, that's another thing too. Easter eggs are part of a magic moment that publishers and designers and developers can add into their games. It doesn't necessarily have to be the magic moment of of experiencing the game, but it could be something outside of it completely. You know, with Grim Forest, one of the magic moments of that game is if you lift the insert, you'll find the genie card. Yeah. You know, that's not a spoiler. If By the way, if you're listening to this and you have not lifted the insert to <laughs> the Grim Forest, yeah. you should do that to go find your genie card. Um, but it's it's those types of moments. Like the sideboard is just riddled with Easter eggs. You've got Thor and Loki and... and uh, the the guy from Witcher, I can't remember his name, but there's lots of different Easter eggs that are sprinkled throughout that entire board. Definitely. I think his name is Geralt. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Oh, also uh, the Loch Ness Monster's on there. Oh, <laughs> that's right. I forgot about that. Hey, we just had another <laughs> little magical moment of me remembering that. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, like you said, it's, it's really cool. And this goes into packaging. This goes into every aspect, man. You can create so many cool magical moments from a publisher, from mm-hmm. a manufacturing side of just th- that moment when the player goes, huh. This is really cool. Or man, this this is cool the way that this locks in place. And like it, it, mm-hmm, it can also mm-hmm. be from, from that side. Yeah, absolutely. Ma- magic moments don't have to be created by designers. Uh, magic moments can be created by publishers, um, again, by the developers, by anybody that has their hands on on that game. I mean, even rule books, yeah. you know, uh, the rule book editors can can add their own little, I've seen Easter eggs in rule books, you know, calling back, you know, and that's one thing. If you're listening to this uh, podcast, take a look at a rule book, it's, you know, um, because a lot of people that have their hands on that game don't get noticed. They don't get the, and again, I, I told uh, Gabe this earlier as we were chatting before we started recording, but you know, we don't do the game design and the game development for, for the money, <laughs> certainly not for the fame. Uh, it's for the love of the game, like they would say in baseball. But a lot of those people that are, are, are touching those games and designing them and making them better, they don't get the, uh, the recognition that they should. So take a look at a rule book and look at the play tester, the designer, the, the artist. Um, and, you know, just, see see what you find sometimes you'll find some easter eggs yeah for sure and the, going back to what you're saying is there's so many people that come together to collaborate to create these magical mm-hmm. moments whether it's the art 
the product design, the packaging, the manufacturing, mean, the whole thing coming together. That's one thing I love about board games. It's it's such a collaborative process. It's such a community thing. It's such a team thing. And me being an old football guy, you know, I just love this idea of so many different players coming together with different talents, different abilities to create one thing, trying to win, you know? And so, I, man, I love board games for that reason. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, and then to get back to your, your question, as far as like those designing magic moments in games, you know, with an IP, uh, that's how I would do that. But when I'm designing games for myself, um, or even just like the creative process of creating a new world or a new game based around something that's completely uh, my idea, you know, one of the things that I really want to do is um, design a mechanism first, and then find a theme that fits what I've created as far as the, the, the mechanisms inside the game and how they work together and how they're all working in, in symphony and, and harmony. And, and then finding, okay, what I've, what I've created, these, these mechanisms and the theme that I've added onto it, how can I then match these up for magic moments? And then playing the game, play testing it and realizing, okay, doing this leads to this, which then leads to this. So you get those snowball effects. Okay, that's cool. That's a good magic moment. Let's keep that. And then go back and let's see what else. Okay, this was, you know, wasn't good. This created a, a negative experience. Okay, well, can that stay? Is a negative magic or is a negative moment necessarily bad? Well, in this instance, yes, let's take that out. In this instance, no, it's fine. They did something that that, that was a consequence of action. And so it's those types of things um, that I think you can look at too. Yeah, for sure. And let's keep traveling down this vein of like playtesting. What is what does it look like to playtest a game looking for these magical moments, trying to make sure, you know, you're on the right path, especially when you get in that grind of playtest after playtest after playtest. Like what are you looking for in the players during those playtests? So like really so that you know as a designer, yeah, I'm on the right path. Well, one of the things that I think that as a designer that you can really hone in on is um so let's let's take the playtesters out of it uh, for a second and and think about your us as a designer and and even the people that are that are developing the game too um do the moments in the game keep you coming back are you excited to get that game to the table again um or are you kind of like oh you know this has got to get this play tested again and make sure this is balanced or this is balanced um or just to kind of go through the grind or are you generally excited you're like yes i get to get that back to the table let's play it let's run these iterations let's see what happens here and then a lot of times you know you'll take notes and we all have our own little tracking systems of of information and research and you know one of the things that i'm reminded of when i play test games is like oh man i remember last month when I play test this and this happened. So I have that memory already ingrained in my head. And so I'll write that down like, okay, I remember when this happened, that's good. I like, those are the types of moments that you want to try to recreate because if you are experiencing that, then the players are going to experience that. And so also with play testers. So then let's, let's go to the play tester side, trying to get the same play testers to the table, try to play with the same people, but also you do want a wide variety because everybody has different personalities. But if you make changes to a game and you're going through a different iteration, try to go back to a playtest group that played an earlier iteration of that same game and then see what their experience is. Um, watch them. One of the best things you can do as a designer is to sit back and watch. Um, you don't necessarily have to be hands-on with the game, playing it with them, but just watching what's happening, uh, noting what the actions are being taken and, and how are the players interacting with your game? And then are they smiling? Are they, are they talking? Are they enjoying it? Is this a very serious moment or, or those types of, of things, all of that can lead to a magic moment. And then after, after you play, one of the best things you can do is do, um, what we call in the, in the military and after action review, um, 
basically sitting there debriefing the team, asking questions. What did you think about this? You know, and even just straight up asking, um, you know, explain what a magic moment is. Like, this is my definition of this. Um, did you experience that in the game? And then if they're like, yeah, I did, this thing happened. Or, you know, if they look at you kind of with a blank stare, you'll realize, okay, they may not have had that magic moment in this play test. It's not the end of the world. Let's see what happens with the next group. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really good advice. And, and like you're saying, when you're, when you're at a play test, just sit back and watch, watch the players, watch their reactions, watch, are they doing certain things? And some people would say, you know, are they on their phone? Well, everybody's on their phone 24 seven. So I don't know that that's necessarily the right, <laughs> you know, litmus test for things. Cause that's just how we are as human beings. Again, 150 times a day checking Instagram, but like, are they right. smiling? Are they talking? Are they asking questions? Are they really just kind of looking around? Are they pondering? Are they staring at their cards and looking at the board, trying to figure out this puzzle and how they're going to play different mm -hmm. cards in what order? Like, are they having these opportunities for magic moments? And if right. you have a story game or a narrative game, do they, do they kind of sit on the edge of their seat when these things happen? Do they get those goosebumps? Like you're talking about with rebellion, like, are they like, what is their reaction to things? And then how can you amp those reactions up to 11? You know, how can you really just hone in and make sure the game is really focused on those reactions, not on, on all the bookkeeping or the fiddliness of things like how can you cut those those things out to make sure you're really mm -hmm. focused on the fun the reactions and, and getting players to engage with your game yeah i i think that's and i totally agree that if somebody's on their phone it's that's not a litmus test to, to decide whether or not a player is in uh is into your game or not you know um right now our our social climate is that we are attached at the hip with our devices yeah. uh it's something that you know a lot of us struggle with and it's something that people are, are just trying to break um but again i think as a designer it's not on you to judge uh, so don't don't sit there and be like, oh, they're hating this game or they're not interested because they're on their phone. Like, you know, at the beginning of a playtest, I 100% would say I would appreciate it if you are not on your phones and that you're engaged with the game. If you have any questions, you know, um, but if somebody does do that, don't hold it against them and don't hold it against your game. Um, and then one of the things that I think that can lend itself to magic moments is in playtesting when players are really... Um, they're really into the game. They're like thinking of ways that they can either break it or circumvent what you've told them or find dubious ways of, of trying to be like, okay, well, these are the rules. I said I could do this, but can I do this, which would lead to this? And then, you know, sometimes I've had those moments where um, I'll be like, no, this is the way the rules are. This is the way it's written. And they're like, but this was way more fun. Like I, when I, I do this, I really, really, really enjoy that. Why does it have to be the way you've written it? And I'll be like, okay, you know, I'll write down the notes and, and we'll go back. And then, you know, then you have to swallow your pride, play it the way they, they, they recommended and be like, okay, that person was right. Yeah. This is, this is more fun. <laughs> right. I think you also have to just realize what kind of game you're designing. If you're designing a 15 minute, right. 30 minute party game, you probably want people to laugh and jump around and, you know, like be excited and kind of the outward obvious magical moments. If you're designing a pretty mm -hmm. heavy Euro, like I've, I've played so many amazing Euros where I feel like, you know, we might've played for an hour and a half, two hours. And the majority of the time we were just sitting there staring at things and just processing and puzzling out and trying to think, okay, if I do this, I'll get five points. If I do that over there, I'll get eight, but it'll cost me this. And you're just puzzling and things and you're trying to, if you're building an engine or whatever you're doing, you're trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the game, if you were to ask me, like, well, did you have fun? Heck yeah, I had fun. That was so much fun. Like trying to, like it was such a <laughs> no exercise, but it was a ton of fun. Like this is a magical moment when I realized that if I did this instead of that, then I can double my points and three turns from now, I can triple my points. Like that's a yep. magical moment. But if you're just sitting there as a designer, you're like, man, these people hate my game. They're not talking to each other. They're not doing anything. Not necessarily. It just depends <laughs> on the kind of game you're designing. So I think be aware of that as well. 
Absolutely. And, and, and I think that's a great point for the Euro magic moment is that that long range strategic planning, yeah. seeing your plan come together, the fruition of the subsequent, you know, the prior rounds and, and seeing it all come together to have those moments of rattling off, you know, boom, 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 get, get chaining things together to score massive amounts of victory points or leading up to the end game scoring where you have secret objectives or some things that you have scored that only you know about and then you snatch the victory away from another player like those are types of magic moments you can have in euros yeah for sure i remember there's been so many times this similar kind of scenario has played out where maybe i'm second or third player and a card or a token or something will come out on the board and i'll think oh man they're gonna get that they're gonna win you know and then they don't choose mm -hmm. it and i get this little smirk on my face it's like oh you should have chosen that card, sir. And then I'll, you know, and then I'll get it. And it'll be the difference in the game or something like that. It's like, ha, and that's the magical moment. I can point back to that moment at the end of the game and say, hey, if you had taken this card, you would have won. Mm -hmm. But instead I won. Mm -hmm. And so it's like it creates these cool, tense, dramatic moments. And it's just, you know, in a Euro game. So I think any game can, like you said, any game can have these moments. It's just going to play out differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Derek, man, this has been great. Do you have any other like closing thoughts or ideas or like advice for somebody that's trying to make a game, trying to create these magical moments in their design? I mean, to, to close it off, um, thanks for listening to, to this episode, uh, for those of you who are listening and, you know, as a designer, um, or for those of you who are, are up in aspiring designers, remember why you're doing this. Remember why players are coming to the table. Uh, remember what it's all about. It's about people. It's about creating fun. It's about creating those moments and, you know, your game does not have to be like somebody else's game. Make your games your own, create your own experiences, uh, put a little bit of your own personality into your game and uh, just just have fun with it. That's, that's what board games are about. They're about having fun, creating moments and uh, lasting memories. Yeah, definitely. Well, Derek, man, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with Walking Dead game coming out in July and good luck with Skybound and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?